When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Sometimes it's the normal, sometimes it's the abnormal, and sometimes it's the paranormal, but it's always right here on Beyond Reality Radio. And actually, tonight, I think it's going to be the inspirational. We've got a very, very emotional show for you tonight. At least it'll be emotional for some people. I know it will be for me. Cancer is a disease that touches everybody's life in some fashion, whether you've lost a loved one or you've had a loved one or yourself has survived a brush with this disease. But it definitely touches all all of our lives. And we're learning more and more that there are other ways to approach treatments for cancer. Sure, traditional medicine talks about radiation, chemotherapy, surgery. But more and more, we're hearing about diet. We're hearing about alternative approaches to trying to solve, cure, maybe even prevent cancer from becoming a factor in your life. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. Our guest tonight will be Rick Shapiro. He is a cancer consultant, a researcher, and an educator. And he's written a new book called Hope Never Dies. And it's a collection of stories from people who have survived late stage or terminal cancer. Their stories include how they approached their own healing, combinations of traditional medicine and alternative medicines, attitudes, and other ways that they approached a disease that can, just by hearing a diagnosis of it, can cripple you. So this is serving to be a show of hope, promise, and hopefully inspiration for a lot of people. So we'll bring Rick Shapiro into the program in just a little bit, and we will take your phone calls if you'd like to share one of your stories with us at, in the second part of the program at 607-282-4497. That's the studio listener line. So we hope that you'll uh, you'll join our conversation. But we do have some great shows coming up later in the week as well. I'd like to tell you about tomorrow night, in fact, returning guest Bernie Taylor will be with us. Bernie's a naturalist and an author, and he will be answering the question, are we alone in the cosmos? That's a question that many of us have asked, and we've heard people talk about on this program in the past. And Bernie's going to answer it by examining nature's timekeeping systems. Bernie's been on the program a couple of times, always a very popular guest. We're anxious to have him on tomorrow night. Friday, of course, is a best of program. Monday, Stephen Schwartz will be with us. He is a futurist, a scientist, and an author. He'll be talking about remote viewing and its uses in archaeology, national security, And he'll also examine what the future will be like. And then on Tuesday night, Gerard Arston will be with us, or excuse me, Gerard Artson will be with us, educator, author, and student of the ageless wisdom. And he asserts that people behind the UFOs are on a spiritual mission to help our ailing world. He's got evidence, proof, and discussion to help explain that. That's Tuesday night's program. So a lot of great stuff coming up here on Beyond Reality Radio. I did notice 
for any of you that uh, get wrapped up in these streaming shows, and this happened to be an HBO program, uh, remember, uh, what was it, six months ago, maybe a little longer than that, Finding Neverland, the documentary that uh, hit the uh, public consciousness about Michael Jackson and allegations of some of the things that were going on in his life. I don't really want to talk about it, but what I do want to say is that Lisa Marie Presley, who was married to Michael Jackson for a couple of years, just signed a deal to write a book that will be a tell-all about her time with Michael Jackson and what she knows about what was going on behind closed doors in Michael Jackson's life. That'll be interesting to hear what she has to say, because there are a lot of people that are disputing the uh, assertions and allegations that were in the documentary Finding Neverland. Justifiably, there's some real questions about those, um, the two people that were making those accusations. Uh, They seem to be genuine. They seem to be sincere. But there were some serious questions. So it'll be interesting to see what Lisa Marie Presley has to say in her book. I'm not sure when the release date is. I know... uh, that it's being worked on now. So that'll be interesting. Swing by Facebook. Give our Facebook page a like. We are trying to grow those numbers. That's where you can get information about the show before we go on the air. It's Beyond Reality Radio on Facebook. Also, go to my Facebook page. Look for JVJ Paranormal. It's JV Johnson on Facebook. Um, It's just JVJ Paranormal if you search it. And also, YouTube has a great opportunity for you to... Not only see the show stream live if you can't listen on a local radio station, but you can also check out the archive of Beck episodes there as well, plus some special content. Go to Facebook, uh, go to YouTube and just search for J.V. Johnson. So we'll take a break. When we come back, we'll bring our guest in again, Rick Shapiro, author of the book Hope Never Dies. It's Beyond Reality Radio. Did you know that online retailers like Amazon have constant deals that can save you money on the things you buy every day? It's no joke. Save 40%, 50%, even 80% on great products, and all you have to do is know about them. Noodle Shark is the way to be alerted when something good is coming your way. Noodle Shark is the social media page that lists great deals that not only save you money, but give you the deals before anyone else has them. All you have to do is find Noodle Shark on Facebook. Search it as The Noodle Shark. That's The Noodle Shark, because you deserve to save too. Become a Shark and Save. Our guest tonight, Rick Shapiro, is a cancer consultant, a researcher, and an educator. He's written a book called Hope Never Dies. The website, by the way, is hopeneverdies.com. Rick, welcome to Beyond Reality Radio. It's a pleasure to have you here. My pleasure to be here. Thank you. Let's learn a little bit about you. You were a practicing attorney, and at some point along yes. the way, you decided to commit yourself, and you became very, very interested in uh, this cancer-related work. What happened? Well, there were two primary events that got me into this world. One, in 1996, my father passed away of cancer. It was March 29th of 96, and I felt rather helpless and hopeless. And at that time, uh, the only thing I knew about was conventional therapy, and that really is radiation, chemotherapy, and surgery. We looked, he, he died March 29th, as I mentioned, and I remember on January 15th, the doctor said, we have a very aggressive cancer here, but we need to bring out the big guns and aggressive chemo to fight it. And the doctor felt that we might have a good shot. So I said, hey, bring it on. A month later, on February 15th, the doctor said, we look at your dad's situation as terminal. And what I witnessed uh, bedside with my father was horrific in terms of the side effects. And after just one cycle, in fact, the nurses felt after one cycle that he would be gone within 24 hours. And he made it through 
another few weeks, but it was a it was a really tough time. But all I knew at that time was strict standard of care. So after he passed away in March of '96, I started wondering: Is there a better way? Are there other things that we are not paying attention to besides chemo, radiation, and surgery? So time went on, and in 2001, I had to scare myself. I went to get more life insurance <clears throat> to increase my life insurance. And the test results came back, the blood work came back, and the doctor said, uh, you have high liver enzymes. And I didn't know what a high liver enzyme was. And they were rather, they were quite high, actually. So I sent the blood work to my doctor. I said, is this something or is this nothing? And he said, well, it's pretty high. Let's do some testing. They did an ultrasound. They did a CAT scan. They did lots of blood work. And they determined that I had something called non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And my numbers were going through the stratosphere at this time. And I was feeling pressure around my liver 12 times per day. I went to a specialist, and the specialist said, I want to do a biopsy on your liver. And those words were frightening words. And I said, I'll tell you what, give me 30 days. And if I can start bringing the numbers down towards normal in 30 days, we'll put off this biopsy. Because a biopsy of your liver is not very pleasant. You're wide awake, and they put this huge needle into your <clears throat> stomach area into the liver and pull out tissue sample. So I read a book by an Australian doctor and a European doctor, and I learned that making major lifestyle changes could possibly impact my health. So I went from what I call the standard American diet, which if you take that as an acronym, standard American diet, SAD, is pretty sad. Hmm. So I converted from my cheeseburgers, my French fries, my ice cream, to mostly a plant-based diet. I stayed away from sugar. I stayed away from confectionery junk, soda, all the garbage that we eat day in, day out, fast food, and went mostly with plant-based. 30 days later, my numbers plummeted towards the normal range. They didn't get into normal for about six months because they were so high, but the doctors were rather astounded. They said, well, keep doing what you're doing. No need for the biopsy. So that made me wonder if one could make lifestyle changes that could alter the disease process. In my case, I was thinking about cancer. So those two events, my father's passing away and my own personal scare, made me question whether conventional therapies is the best way to go. I'm a little bit um, stunned at the moment uh, for a couple reasons. One is um, I I lost my father to cancer uh, just a few years ago, and you know, Sorry I, I had, well, thank you. And I had some of the same uh, feelings of helplessness that you described in losing your father. And then yeah. three, three years after that, I lost my mother to non-alcoholic uh, liver cirrhosis or fatty liver disease. I right. watched that happen. Um, so I know exactly what you're talking about in both of those cases. And uh, it's inspiring to hear somebody basically relate a story that you felt like you may have been on the edge of the cliff, if you will, recognized you were there, made some changes, and were able to see a direct impact from those changes to alter your health for the better. Yeah, there was no doubt this was cause and effect. This was not something that was magical. I made specific, concrete, tangible changes in my lifestyle. Plant-based food, very little uh, animal protein. When I had animal protein, it would be either wild salmon or pasture-fed 
cattle. Uh, the same thing with, with poultry. Uh, I, I stayed away from processed food, sugar. I ate a lot of leafy greens, broccoli, berries, organic vegetables. Every day I was drinking 24 to 36 ounces of freshly pulverized vegetable juice. I mean, freshly made, things that, that you normally wouldn't eat. And I looked at this as my medicine. I'd rather be drinking veggie juice made fresh at Whole Foods or wherever than having an IV in my arm. But there was a direct correlation, unquestionably, because that's what I did. I exercised more because I hadn't been exercising a lot in those days. I was busy with work, but it made a major impact. And, and you know, when you think about it, every year, actually 2017 stats, 600,000 people in this country died of cancer. 1.7 million were diagnosed. To put that in perspective, 600,000, and every year the absolute number has been increasing, 38,000 people died of automobile accidents. Well, every three weeks, 38,000 people die of cancer. For those of us old enough to remember, the war in Vietnam, 58,000 people, 58,000 Americans died over 10 years Every five weeks, 58,000 Americans die from cancer. So it puts in perspective about how profound this is and the fact that we are really not making progress given all of the propaganda and stuff we see on TV all the time. We have, uh, you mentioned the three, what would be considered standard treatments for uh, a significant cancer. Uh, that would be surgery, that would be chemotherapy, and that would be radiation. They haven't changed I, my grandfather also died from cancer, and he was having those same treatments in 1989 um, that my father was having in 2014. Has there been any real progress from traditional medicine to help uh, the um, possibility of survival from some of these advanced cancers? Uh, that's a great question. Let, let's go back a little bit in history. Chemotherapy was invented in the late 1940s, it actually emanated from something called mustard gas. Mustard gas was a weapon used in World War II. So at the beginning, back in the late 40s, the early 50s, it was two or three types of chemotherapies that were used. Then we had something called the Great War on Cancer in 1971, when Richard Nixon, the president at that time, declared war on cancer, and they were going to spend billions of dollars. They thought they would knock cancer out within 10 years. Didn't happen. So chemotherapy has been a mainstay up until this moment in time, as well as radiation and surgery. There are more chemotherapeutic drugs, but the actual progress has been incremental at best, minimal at best. And what you see is with the new chemo drug, they say, oh, we have a breakthrough. That means you get another two to three months of life. Well, at what cost? So these are not breakthroughs. If somebody says you're going to get five more years, ten more years, that's a significant material breakthrough, but not two or three months. Right. Cardiovascular disease, by comparison, has made great strides in the last 50 years. We've made very, that's just, and strokes. We've mitigated stroke recurrences and strokes in cardio. But cancer, the incremental improvement has been minimal at best. Cancer is complex. It is a complicated disease. I will state that. But we really haven't gone beyond the narrow focus of those three therapies you just mentioned. And there's some reasons why. We might explore that, if, if I can. 
Yeah, let's let's do that. let's do it after the break here because we only have thirty seconds before we go to the break. So let's hold that okay. thought. I want to ask you one other question quickly, though. Uh, when at what point did you decide to write the book "Hope Never Dies"? Well, it, it was a process over time. It took uh, it took a few years to get this done, but I probably started working on it very heavily about four years ago. Rick, you were talking about chemotherapy. Let's let's pick up that conversation. Um, it really hasn't changed, has it? It really has not changed much. In all fairness, there is something. We are at the dawn of something called immunological therapies. And immunological therapies are going to take 10 or 15 years because before they possibly play a major role in helping cancer patients, whereby we are trying to reign, use the power and leverage the power of the immune system. But we're at the dawn of that particular age. Chemo is still a primary therapy along with radiation and uh, and surgery and it's it's highly toxic and it goes after the healthy tissues as well as attacking the cancer but it really doesn't get to the root causes it's just about blasting the cancer cells but you know these cancer cells didn't come out of nowhere this cancer tumor didn't evolve from from outer space it just it happened for certain reasons and we need to get to the core reasons and get to the root issues as to why they came about and attack them with other types of therapies. When you decided to write the book, uh, you were must have been aware at that point that there had been people that had beaten the odds and found a way to do it, uh, sometimes in, in, in coordination with traditional tr- uh, treatments and sometimes outside of that world. Uh, what came along your horizon that inspired you to collect these stories and share them? In 2010, after marinating in this world of cancer, I read about 100 books regarding integrative cancer treatments, alternative cancer treatments, anecdotal stories about somebody who survived and was here 20 years later after they were told they were terminal, conventional treatments. I went to a cancer conference in 2010, and I went with open-minded skepticism. I didn't know what to expect, but I wanted to learn more. So I went to this conference in West Palm Beach, Florida, where they had a lot of speakers. They had doctors. They had PhDs and other pundits, other experts, talking about integrative and alternative therapies. And after spending about four days in West Palm, I got back on the plane to fly back to Phoenix, and I said, wow, there really is something to this. Because when I have a mission, I I go after it. For example, the first morning I was there, I approached a doctor who I knew was going to speak, and I said, doctor, why did you leave your conventional oncological practice and go into the alternative world? And he said, because the results were abysmal when it came to just working with conventional strict standard of care treatments. And he made a major transformation, and he said the results uh, and the outcomes of my patients are far, far superior. And I I went out to dinner with these docs, and and I went out to lunch and breakfast with a lot of the people who were there, cancer patients who were there 15 years later, past their so-called expiration dates, and I wanted to find out what they did. So this really inspired me. So now it's 27 cancer conferences later. Now, in fact, I speak at cancer conferences. uh, And I I have met literally over 500 people at conferences face-to-face, who were told by major cancer centers, get your affairs in order, there's nothing more we can do, you've got three to six months to live. So the 20 stories in Hope Never Dies is a mere microcosm of what is out there and about the fact that you can beat the odds. There are no guarantees in the world. I'm not going to say that if you do certain things, you're guaranteed to live another 20 years or 30 years or eradicate your cancer, but you can certainly materially 
uh, have optimal changes, and you can beat the odds, and, and you can extend your longevity and quality of life. And it's sometimes uh, everyone in the book, actually there's one person in the book who passed away at the age of 88, and he was diagnosed at the age of about um, 40. Oh, wow. All other 19 people are here. 10, 20, 25 years later, and these are people with pancreatic cancer, lung cancer, prostate, breast, ovarian, brain cancer, uh, kidney cancer, I can go on and on. Real people, real names. I want to get to some of the similarities between those folks and how their approach to combating the disease was, but one of the things that I recognize right away from the stories you share in the book, plus other stories I've heard of people that have beaten the odds, is this commitment uh, and this attitude to win. How important is attitude in this whole process? Attitude is actually very, very important. Think about it. If you're about to climb a mountain and you, and you see this mountain before you and you say, well, I don't really know if I can get to the top of that mountain. It looks pretty daunting. I, I, I'm not sure I can do it. The chances of your succeeding are mitigated tremendously. Now, let's be honest. When someone gets a diagnosis, certainly their, their mortality flashes before their eyes, high stress, high anxiety. But after a day, a week, two weeks, maybe it takes a month, it's important to find that inner resolve, that inner strength, to be able to move forward with a positive attitude. And you have to realize when a doctor says to you, you've got three to six months to live or a year to live, that is just a statistic based on hundreds of thousands of people. And you as an individual are not a statistic. And most of the people who are given these statistics, a lot of them just bury their head under a pillow, they draw the blinds, and they rapidly go into the abyss. They go down. They don't go out and try to find other things that are on the cutting edge, other integrative or alternative therapies, which are not necessarily conventional, or even what I call progressive chemotherapy. Because there's a chemotherapeutic approach, which sometimes is necessary. It's, chemo is often too often used, but sometimes necessary, and there's a better way to do it than it's done now. So attitude is important. You have to realize you are not a statistic. When you um, get a diagnosis of cancer, um, when someone gets that diagnosis, what's the first thing that, that should be going through the mind? Obviously, fear is probably the first thing that does, but what's the first thing that should be? Breathe. Don't forget to breathe. Do not panic. Uh, do not go into a frenzy and be careful about whose advice you take. Because if you go then to an oncologist and it's a Thursday and the oncologist says, we have to start chemo on Tuesday, I say, time out. Hold on. It takes frequently, depending on which scientist you believe, 20 years or at least seven to ten years for a cancer to start from this microscopic cell to then become a tumor, which is uh, viewable by the diagnostic tools that we have. But it's important to breathe and, and just take your time and, and assess things and honestly get several opinions. I would get an opinion from not just a conventional doc, but an integrative doc and, and an alternative specialist or alternative people who work in the world uh, who are reputable. But you have to not panic. It's normal to panic, but sure. you have to try and take a deep breath. Rick, do we know what actually causes cancer? And we know things like smoking has a direct link to causing cancer. And, you know, we know there are certain correlations between behavior or foods or activities that will either increase your risk or directly cause cancer. But do we really know what causes cancer? 
The first short answer is no, but the second answer is uh, there's a large probability that there are a couple of things. First of all, lots of people think, which is erroneous, it's inaccurate, that a lot of cancer is caused by hereditary uh, genetic um, process. In other words, if your mom and dad had it, you're likely to get it. Well, only 5 to 10 percent, 5 to 10 percent of people who get cancer, it, it's due to hereditary uh, rationale. 90 to 95 percent are due to a whole host of reasons, what I call internal and external environmental factors. What's internal? Well, you touched on that a, a minute ago, nutrition. Think today versus 50 years ago about all the junk in our food, all the chemicals in our food, the hormones and, and the antibiotics and the drugs that are pumped into cattle so they grow faster for the slaughterhouse or so they can produce more milk or with respect to fish so they grow a lot bigger in fish farms. Same goes with poultry. Mother Nature did not intend for us to eat all these chemicals. And in the food pyramid, what they eat, we ultimately eat. So nutrition is a big factor. Toxic environments. We live in a high-stress, toxic world. I mean, we're looking at our phones 50 times a day. We're going to Facebook. We're looking at emails. We don't even have a time to take a deep breath and relax. Thirdly, toxic relationships. Um, it's a high-stress world, and, and so these lifestyle issues can impact our future health. So nutrition is important, but also external factors. What about chemicals and toxins in our environment? I'm standing here on the phone with you looking down at the carpet, and I'll bet you there are chemicals in that carpet. How about the water we drink and the air that we breathe? So there's a lot of chemicals in the environment, and I, in fact, believe that cell phones, and I use a cell phone every day, uh, will bring about a brain cancer epidemic 20 years from now, just like cigarettes did many years ago. So a lot of things that we produce in life and a lot of things uh, regarding chemicals and toxins also can bring about cancer. But beyond that, we don't know specifically, but there's a high likelihood that those are the reasons. It's not all bad news, and you've got to look for the good news. Rick, and when you find the good news, you've got to embrace the good news, and you've got to find something that may work for you, which is what the folks in your in the stories that you tell in your book did. They found something that worked for them. That's correct. Yes, it, it's, it's really important to find, first of all, to find the right practitioners. And, and that's not an easy thing to do. There's no guidebook to finding the right, open-minded, highly sophisticated practitioners. But the best approach, and the approach that most of the people in the book took, was a multifaceted approach. Multifaceted meaning they utilized several different types of therapies. In addition to that, and we can get to those therapies in a minute, they found sophisticated docs. Now, that could be an integrative oncologist. It could be a naturopath who specializes in oncology. It could be somebody who specializes in nutritional oncology or botanical or herbal oncology who may be a Ph.D. or, or brilliant in that particular area, and bringing the team together. So a multifaceted approach of bringing different therapies to the table with sophisticated people personalized to the individual. Remember we said before, you are not a statistic. You are an individual. So how do you personalize these therapies? You do certain testing, and then you assess. So based on objective criteria, objective criteria means the appropriate blood work or looking at tissue samples, and make sure you've got compassionate people on your team to go forward. So in terms of the types of therapies, one is nutritional. The power of the fork, F-O-R-K, and I'm not trying to be silly about it, but 
it's amazing what nutrition can do if you commit to it. Moderation is not going to work if you happen to have cancer. You really have to commit yourself morning, noon, and night, and not say, well, gee, I had wild salmon and broccoli today. I'm going to have some ice cream tonight. You will nullify the powerful impact of what that does to your body and your biochemistry. So nutritional oncology, guided by experts, is really important. Botanical or herbal or supplementation protocols are critical. And there are people who are experts in this country. Just like drugs, dose matters. The types of supplements matter. In addition to that, there's also exercise. And exercise can be very, very powerful in terms of uh, getting oxygen-rich blood to your body, uh, minimizing nausea, uh, and it does so many powerful things to your body as well. And then mind-body types of therapies. Mind-body can mean everything from meditation to prayer to laughter to music. So there's all kinds of mind-body things. It can help us relax because stress is not our friend. Stress does not help our immune system do what it needs to do to fight cancer. And and let me make one point about some of these things. There's something called PubMed.gov. Talking about the concept of evidence, PubMed.gov has 27 million studies. It's a, an online library that is controlled and governed by the National Institute of Health. 27 million studies. So if you put the word in the search engine of PubMed.gov, if you put the word in curcumin cancer, curcumin is the biologically active agent in turmeric, also known as turmeric. And turmeric is something you find in our spice cabinets. So there's been a lot of power to this this curcumin in terms of mitigating internal inflammation. There's over 4,000 studies, 4,000 studies related to curcumin and cancer. If you put the word in green tea extract in the search engine, you'll come up with 4,000 studies and change. And vitamin D cancer, you'll come up with over 10,000 studies. So there's a plethora of medical literature and, and information that shows that these things can be powerful therapies. So we just we shouldn't just discard them because they don't come from the standard of care. So yes, a multifaceted approach is critical. Now, not everybody follows the same approach. There's no perfect protocol for everyone. There are different ways to approach cancer, and everyone's cancer is different. But there are so many therapies. And in fact, there's progressive chemotherapy. There are, <clears throat> and that's how do you choose the cancer drugs? How do you distribute it to the individual? How do you mitigate toxicity? Well, There's something called the National Comprehensive Cancer Network, which is a consortium of the 27 biggest cancer centers in the United States. And they come out with recommendations to all the oncologists about what chemo to use for what types of cancer, which is staged, whether it's stage one, two, three, or four. Well, there are two doctors in the the United States. And by the way, the NCCN that I just mentioned, that's based on large studies of hundreds of thousands of people. There are two docs in this country, both in California, that have what I call a functional profile test. And they will take a tissue sample from the individual, a one-gram sample. They will test it against 12 to 16 different types of chemo and chemo combinations. And they will see, you can't get any more customized than that, based on your particular tissue sample, if it is working or not. So that uh, is the best way, in my opinion, that, that exists today to determine what chemo works. Because a lot of times people do chemo and it doesn't work and you've just smashed your body to smithereens. All the healthy cells get beaten to heck. Yeah. Secondly, what kind of distribution? Should we bring out the big guns or do what's called the metronomic approach? And metronomic means a, a, a lower dose over a longer period of time. And there's a lot of literature that shows that can work as well as bringing out the big guns. And it also does not do such damage to your body. 
And thirdly, what about the toxicity? There are ways that we can mitigate toxicity. One way is fasting. Dr. Walter Longo at the University of Southern California is the patriarch about fasting. You can find a lot of literature online by just putting his name in, L-O-N-G-O, Ph.D., USC, fasting. You'll see a lot of data there. And that tends to put your healthy cells into dormancy, and it does not... Uh, it makes your cancer cells vulnerable to chemo. So fasting a couple of days before, the day of and the day after, if you, if you have the vitality to do so, is important. Secondly, acupuncture. There's a lot of anecdotal evidence that acupuncture works quite well right after chemo. And thirdly, there are certain botanicals and herbs that are given before chemo, right after chemo, that mitigates toxicity. Again, you need experts to guide you, but there are so many things that we can do today that can be powerful and that can bring about much, much greater outcomes that we experience than we experience with standard of care. Rick, the book talks about 83 questions, important questions that needed to be, need to be asked. I remember when my father received his diagnosis, I don't think we asked two questions. I think basically we just said, okay, what are you going to do for him? Um, it turned out not to be uh, a very successful treatment. What are some of these 83 questions that we should be thinking about? Sure, and they are very important, which uh, the 83 questions are meant as a guide, obviously, to empower people with knowledge and not to be afraid to ask questions to this person who's got the white coat on and the stethoscope around his or her neck. But several questions. Ask the question, is there evidence based on recent or past studies or the experience of the doctor uh, about the potential efficacy, the effectiveness of the treatment that is being recommended? Get straight answers. Ask another question about, is the goal to cure the individual, to control the cancer, to slow its progression? Is it just palliative or to bring about some other objective? Another question, ask them directly, what about side effects associated with these treatments? What can be expected and how can one deal with those side effects to be able to get through the treatments? Because I think that stats are somewhere around 35 to 40 percent of the time people get chemo, they stop the treatments because the side effects are too difficult. I would ask the statement directly, what treatments or therapies would you prescribe for yourself or a loved one if you were in my situation? You might want to ask the question, um, what if I choose to refrain from or not do some of the recommendations that you are making to me? Are you going to keep me as your doctor? I'd like to know also, is that conventional doc, if you're talking to a conventional oncologist, are they willing to work with integrative specialists in the nutritional area, supplementation area, exercise, or, or other particular areas that can be beneficial to one's outcome. Ask them if they work collaboratively with these types of people. Ask them if there's anything that you can do on your own, in your own life, to help mitigate uh, the threat of this cancer metastasizing. And even if it has metastasized, as in most of the cases in the book it did, what can you do to beat back this cancer, and ask them what their definition is of success, short-term goals and long-term goals. Find out about the person's bedside manner. If this person is not compassionate based on your assessment, find another doctor. Does he or she have good communication skills? Does he or she seem forthright and honest about everything they are telling you? And I want to know if this doctor has a fighting spirit as well. If they're impatient, by the way, in answering these questions, or all 83 questions, 
that's not a good sign. You need them to spend time with you and not just have you in their office for 15 minutes if you have important questions about your future. So if they're unwilling to ask, answer good questions about treatments and therapies and other treatments and therapies that they're open to, you might want to consider somebody else. Many doctors are open to uh, patients' suggestions of working with some alternative options as long as they stay committed to the traditional options as well. Um, are, are, is the medical community becoming more accepting of some of these alternatives? Two answers to that. Very slowly and more so when you hit stage four. Because at stage four, when you're, you're down the road and something has metastasized to other parts of the body, uh, they become less optimistic and they say, okay, well, you can try this or that if you want. But a lot, of, some of them are very rigid and will not permit you, if they're going to treat you, to try other things. Some of them will, but slowly, slowly, because look, we live in the, in the age of the internet and there are lots of treatments and therapies out there that are becoming more known to people and cancer is a daunting and tough disease. So they are, the young doctors especially, are becoming more open-minded. Some of the older docs, and I'm making a stereotypical generalization, which is not always true, but some of the older docs are not interested in, in exploring other types of things. I, I had lunch the other day with a buddy of mine who's got an aggressive melanoma. He told me about uh, one doctor he went to who kind of just dismissed the power of making major nutritional changes, and he talked to another doc who said, yeah, it, it could be helpful. The second doctor was the younger one. The first one was the older one. So that's a generalization. But I hope people become more and more open to these treatments and therapies that can have a profound effect on one's future. Let's, uh, let's talk about a couple of the, the stories that you do share in the book. There are 20 in the book. Um, let's, uh, let's talk about Elizabeth. I know that uh, one of the stories is about a, a, a lady named Elizabeth. Tell us about her approach to her disease. Sure. Elizabeth, Elizabeth Pankey. Uh, Elizabeth, uh, by the way, she's alive and well and doing fantastic. She was born in Poland in 1950. She has a, a medical degree and a Ph.D., a master's in physical therapy. Uh, and she, uh, in fact, owned a, a lab that did genetics up in Cincinnati. So she was well-versed, in fact, and had a fellowship in molecular biology. So she knew all about the medical world. In June of 1999, during a gynecological exam, Elizabeth's doctor discovered minor irregular bleeding. In <clears throat> late June, an ultrasound revealed a large tumor on her ovary. And in July, her doctor informed her she had stage 3 ovarian and uterine cancer, which had now spread to the abdomen. And Elizabeth said, quote, I was shocked. I was so angry. Why did this happen to me? One week after her diagnosis, <clears throat> The surgeon removed her ovaries, her uterus, and any visible cancer. She went with standard chemotherapy for her type of cancer two weeks after surgery. The doctor said to Elizabeth, the chemo will probably take care of the problem. <clears throat> Elizabeth said, quote, I lost all my hair. I was getting Taxol and Carboplatin. I took nausea uh, medication and continued to work, but the experience was highly strenuous. Elizabeth continued and said, my cancer grew aggressively despite the chemo. She also developed tumors on her spleen. And every day, a gallon of malignant fluid was, not every day, every week, a gallon of malignant fluid was pulled out of her abdomen. Every single week. Wow. She was in a dangerous situation. They tried another chemo because the first chemo drug didn't work, but nothing good happened. Then 
she was getting highly nervous, obviously, and she was losing weight. She traveled to five prestigious cancer centers throughout the United States. She had metastatic disease, two kinds of chemo didn't work, and the cancer was spreading. Nobody knew what to do. And at, at this point, now it's October of 1999, several doctors told her, lady, it's doubtful you'll make it to Christmas. This was in October. They were saying, it's oh, doubtful wow. you'll make it two months. So she was in disbelief. And she was all over the Internet at this, at this point and talking to everyone she could. And the Internet was really not mature at that point in time. It really hadn't developed that much. But she found a guy named Dr. Robert Nagurney in Southern California. And Nagurney is what he, in fact, he has written a chapter in the book. In addition to the 20 stories, there are five doctors who write chapters. But he's one of two pioneers out there who had a chemosensitivity test. And she got him on the phone and was impressed with his credentials, his knowledge, and in fact, she felt he was brilliant. She flew out to California the next day. She had no time to waste because, as she put it, I was dying. But she wasn't giving up. And she went to his lab. And she, she had Nagurney pull ascites, which is the liquid, the malignant liquid from her abdomen, out and tested the cancer cells against several different types of chemotherapeutic regimens. He called her a week later after she went back to Cincinnati and said the cancer cells just melt away with a particular protocol. This was not a protocol used by conventional doctors. So he also, when she was in California, injected the personalized chemo cocktail. Uh, she went back, actually, into her veins and directly into her stomach. Uh, lo and behold, to make a, a kind of a long story short, she, the, she's here, and this is now 30 years later, doing great. She's retired, uh, no evidence of cancer in her body. She talks to him every year, and she goes for a test every year to make sure everything is good. And it's because of this chemosensitivity test, she was going down fast, that he found the right protocol, which was not conventional standard of care. And I'll just say in conclusion regarding Elizabeth Pankey, she said, quote, I informed the major cancer centers that I had visited of my wonderful outcome, the fact that the cancer was gone. To my dismay, all they had to say was, lady, you are lucky. They didn't even want to know what she did. Additionally, Elizabeth said, since my successful treatments, I came to accept what is and enjoy the moments in life. I don't have all the answers. My role, my role is to do the best I can in my life every day. You must want to live. I find that cancer patients who do the best become self-advocates who direct their own therapies versus just going along with their doctors. People shouldn't lose hope. Keep searching. Follow your heart. And those are her direct words. She's doing fantastic 20 years later. Wow. Rick, we have to go to break here in just a minute, but I want to just pick up on a point you made there. Uh, her uh, doctor's original doctors didn't seem to be interested in what she did to actually beat the cancer. They just said she was lucky. Is that a, is that the problem with uh, with uh, the medical community in many cases that they they learned what they learned at some point and then it's tunnel vision from that point on? You're absolutely 100%. It's a sad reality. They don't really care. They just attribute it to luck. But it's not luck. It's not spontaneous remission. It's rational remission based on rational reasons and rational therapies. Rick, one of the stories you tell in the book relates to a woman who used a macrobiotic diet. Now, I've heard more and more about a macrobiotic diet in in terms of um, helping cure disease. Tell us about her story. Janet was her name. There is her name. Tell us about her story and what she did. Absolutely. Janet Summer um, 
born in 1950 in Ohio. Her parents smoked three packs a day. She had a poor diet. In fact, her background was as a nurse and a nurse educator. So she also had a medical background. She had a stressful life early on. She was divorced at 40. And uh, one month before her diagnosis, when she turned 45, she felt particularly fatigued. She went to a doctor for an appointment. She thought she might have bronchitis. And the doctor said, no, there's no problem. Um, but she was, she was still concerned about it. She had a friend who she played tennis with who was also a doctor, and she asked him for an antibiotic, and, and he said, okay, I'll give you an antibiotic, but you need to do a CAT scan because you might have pneumonia. So she went for the CAT scan, and then follow-up PET scans, which showed she had tumors in both lungs, the pancreas, the liver, the stomach, and the lymph system. Oof. That was on April 11th of 1995, diagnosis, non-small cell lung cancer. And in Janet's words, she said, I was absolutely shocked. The doctor said, you have three to six months to live. There is no hope. Janet went to get a second medical opinion from a major cancer center in the Midwest. And that doctor at that major institution said, you have three to six weeks to live. Wow. She told her son that she was going to die. One week after diagnosis, they said, you know, if you want, we could take your, uh, some of the uh, malignancy from the stomach mass out, and you can begin chemo. It might buy you a month or two. Well, she did want to keep living, so they took the mass out, and uh, she went on one cycle of chemo. It was supposed to be six cycles, of, again, taxol and carboplatin. But three weeks after her first dose of chemo, she went from 114 pounds to 72 pounds. She was not that large of a woman to begin with, obviously, but 72 pounds. And in her words, Janet said, I look like a concentration camp survivor. She said, it was impossible for me to continue the chemo treatments. At that point, Janet entered hospice care and felt that was it. Her doctor said to her, Janet, why don't you try something alternative? And she responded, having been trained conventionally, she said, no, I can't. That's for hippies. Anything besides conventional medicine is nonsense. Her doctor said, you've got nothing to lose. Look into macrobiotic food. So Janet reluctantly, at the urging of her sister, found a macrobiotic counselor from, in the phone book, believe it or not. Uh, there were phone books at one time. And Janet uh, said, he didn't promise a miracle cure, but he gave me hope. Her lungs were filled with fluid. She was on oxygen. She was using a wheelchair. And she needed help just to get to the bathroom. Janet was very fortunate as an individual because she had an incredible support system of eight friends who cooked for her. Remarkably, two days after they, she went on this macrobiotic diet, she stopped vomiting because she was vomiting constantly. During the first five months, her tumors kept growing, but slowly. She didn't want any more bad news, so she told her doctor, I don't want to do any more scans. And she said, quote, I wasn't into deep breathing and prayer, but deep breathing helped alleviate my pain and helped me relax. She had full body massages, which were also soothing. So 10 months had now elapsed. And then she, she uh, since she began the diet, and she decided to get scanned at that point to see what was going on. She said, quote, I was scared and curious. I had lived longer than most expected. And then she continued and said, I, a few days later at 9.30 p.m., my doctor called me after looking at the scans and said, all your tumors are gone. Those were the best words that she ever heard. She said, besides, it's a boy. <laughs> so she uh, was blown away with this news. And again, she was on this protocol, which was a nutritional protocol, obviously, 
for a very, very long time. So she went before what's called the tumor board, and a tumor board is comprised of anywhere between 10 and 15 people. They can be doctors, nurses, and in this case, there were 15 people made up of oncologists, internists, nurses, hospice workers, and others. And Janet said, scans were shown at the presentation, and one doctor said, it's impossible that this person before us is the person who is alive and living here. Well, they were looking at scans at this tumor board, and she had fractured her rib many years before, and she had had scans in the recent past at this point in time, and they showed the two scans and said, look, this scan was done 30 years ago, and this scan was done just a year ago. It's the same person. It's in the same exact spot. This is really the person uh, that has recovered. Another doctor at this tumor board rationalized and said, it must have been the one dose of chemo that did the trick. Well, they, they finally proved to the docs that, uh, that it really was her. And, and one doctor said, you're correct, it must have been the one dose of chemo that did the trick. But another doctor said, well, that doesn't make sense, because when we give all six treatments for this type of metastasized cancer, six cycles don't work anyway. Now, this was said in the confines of a private meeting. And I'm thinking to myself, they don't work anyway. Why are you putting the patient through six treatments of harsh chemotherapy. Anyway, that's, that's what he said. Um, and then Janet said that my doctor said, whatever the cause, she is here, and this is what she did. She said that during her first year in hospice, she gave away most of her clothes, thinking that she was a goner. Those are her words. She was in hospice care a total of 18 months. And Janet said, I believe how I eat impacts every cell in my body. I am now more open and trusting. I used to be cynical and angry. I believe anything is possible, and I thank God for my story because it gives people hope. Janet continued and said, since I left hospice, life has been great. People who embrace this lifestyle heal, but they must stay with it 100%. I thank God every morning for the new day before my feet hit the floor. And at the end of the interview with Janet, she said, never give up, never give up, never give up. And uh, she is a remarkable story. You mentioned something there. Uh, you, you you mentioned God. Was is there any common thread through these stories or stories that you hear where religion or faith plays an important role? Out of the twenty stories, I haven't really done a count, quite honestly. But I would, if I was going to take a rough guess, that uh, perhaps I'm going to say maybe twelve, maybe a little bit more than half. Uh, are people who are religious and have faith in God, and they, they feel that that has carried them through the treatments and therapies. And it's not just about praying and, and hoping God will do things for them. They also took action. But it did play a part in, in calming their concerns and fears. So, yes, spirituality and religion can play a role um, in these situations, and uh, it can be very helpful to, to people. I can't uh, I can't count the number of times and we've actually reported on this program several times when we hear these announcements of a major breakthrough in fighting cancer. Uh, there's been several recently, but it seems as though those major announcements which provide all this hope then kind of fade away and we don't hear anything anymore. Uh, do you know of any major breakthroughs in 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 traditional medicine that uh, provide some hope for those types of approaches to cure or uh, other treatments? Um, and is there anything on the horizon? I think you mentioned a few earlier, but is there anything on the horizon that should give people who have more faith in the traditional medicine route uh, some hope? Uh, 
as I, yes, as I mentioned earlier, there are certain immunological therapies which are intended to kick the immune system into high gear or to prevent cancer from hiding from the immune system. And these are drugs you actually see advertised on TV uh, all the time, um, but they are slow in coming to the marketplace. They are not providing what I consider to be great breakthroughs. And when you see the ads on TV, stop the picture for a second, look at the small print at the the bottom, and they'll say, well, this gets you another three months of life. So there are immunological therapies, but it's going to take time. There is no silver bullet in terms of beating cancer at this point in time. There's been some past isolated situations where uh, testicular cancer... can be as is almost beatable most of the time with chemotherapy. There are certain lymphomas, there are certain pediatric cancers, uh, but the mainstay major cancers. There's been real slow progress. There's one thing I should really bring up that's really important, and I don't know if I discuss this at length, but people say, if this stuff works, why do medical doctors not utilize some of these alternative therapies? Right. Well, the reason why is we live in a pharmaceutical society, a silver bullet mentality prevails. People go to the doctor and say, hey, doc, what can I get to knock out this problem that I have? Well, if the FDA doesn't approve something, then the doctor won't recommend it. And to get something past the FDA, they have to do what's called studies of cancer cell, uh, cancer cell lines. Then they test the cancer in mice. And they do what's called a phase one study, a phase two, and a phase three study, starting with 30 people up to perhaps 1,000 people. It takes 10 to 15 years to do these studies. And according to Tufts University Medical School, in a 2014 study, they said from the inception of the study to drug approval, $2.5 billion. Now, some people say it's not that much. But why, does, why do people even spend $500 million or $1 billion? The answer is simple. You've got a patent for 20 years that protects the utilization of that drug, people make billions on it. So some of the alternative therapies I'm talking about and integrative therapies will never get through an FDA study because they're not pharmaceuticals. And who's going to spend a billion dollars on something that they can't get a return on investment on? And I've talked to oncologists about that. And they said, you know what, you have a good point. So that is one major reason because we live in a pharmaceutical society, but there's so much we can do uh, to enhance and support our immune system and to fight cancer. History has shown us that not everybody can be trusted, and there are people that have claimed to be able to cure disease, cancer, and others uh, that turned out to be real charlatans. How do do folks separate fact from fiction when it comes to people like that? Very fair question, because I detest, I absolutely detest those people, those charlatans who try and take advantage of the vulnerable people who have a serious cancer situation and sell them some nonsense that is patently going to be ineffective. <clears throat> it, it can be a little tricky, and there are quacks out there. There are people who are, charl- who are charlatans, and, and you really just have to do your research and look into the backgrounds of these people and the backgrounds of the th- therapies that they are promoting. I would state that you want to go with an integrative doc, a naturopath who's a doc, or somebody who's a specialist, and you've got to get a lot of information on these people, but they can be profoundly helpful. At the same time, I will say that there are people in the conventional world who demonize people who are into integrative therapies and alternative. There are people in the conventional world who also spread misinformation and disinformation um, and attack them online, and, and that is... I equally detest that as well, uh, because there are these therapies that can be profoundly beneficial, even though they're not standard of care. But that's a very good point. 
you uh, we've talked about several different approaches that have worked in the curing of cancer. I have to assume that those same approaches will help or could help in the prevention of cancer. How important is that approach? It, it's it's critical in the prevention and the prevention of recurrences. Quite frankly, if, if you know people live their life and they don't really take action frequently, unfortunately, when it comes to preventative therapies, until they feel pain, until they until a doctor tells them that they've got a serious situation. Um, but if you may, I, I mean, I made the changes when I had my. Uh, scare when someone told me I needed a biopsy in my liver many years ago. And I watch my diet pretty carefully. I get a physical every year. And if my numbers are a little bit off, because I know what the different blood tests mean, then I will make changes in my diet or I'll exercise more and do what I need to do. But from a preventative standpoint, you can certainly mitigate the probability of you getting cancer or any disease with significant nutritional changes. And by the way, cancer loves sugar. Uh, sugar is, they got their, they're gluttons for sugar. And we do need glucose for our cells, but they have an appetite which is six to ten times what normal cells like. So stay away from sugar and sugar equivalents. That is really important. So exercise is, is always important for any situation. Nutrition, uh, not letting the nonsense of the world get to us, high stress, they can play a major role in prevention of cancer and all diseases. When you say sugar, uh, obviously direct sugar is, is an obvious one, but what about the sugars and fruits? Are they the same thing? Good point. Uh, the, it, when it comes to fruit, that is not artificial sugar that's been injected into that particular fruit. I, it's better to go with a plant-based diet, vegetables, more so than fruit, but fruit in moderation is okay because it's natural. But also regarding sugar... Things like white bread, white pasta, white rice, white potatoes. When it hits your stomach, it converts to sugar. So it's not a great idea to eat a lot of bread, any kind of bread, quite frankly, unless it's sprouted bread, um, as well as potatoes and pasta. Keep that to a minimum if you will. But it, sugar comes in all kinds of formats, and there's a lot of things in the ingredients that you look at that is, you don't know is sugar, but really is. So it's good to stay away from those types of foods. You said in the process of putting this book together, you, you heard many, many stories. You narrowed it down to 20. What made you select the 20 that you did? Quite honestly, I wanted to get a cross-section cross of all different kinds of cancer because... Uh, everyone has different types of cancer, and these are some of the most lethal, like glioblastoma, which is, uh, is the worst kind of brain cancer, pancreatic cancer, so different cancers. And the people in the book, and I use their full name when you get to the chapter, there's no John Doe's or Susie Smith's in here, all over the country, because cancer is prevalent. It doesn't discriminate against anyone and everyone throughout the country and the world. And I just decided that these were good stories and, and honest people because I wanted to make sure. Also, I, I vetted them very carefully. I didn't want to hear any stories about people that might be made up or anything. So I vetted them very, very carefully. I rejected a few people before I got to the 20 uh, people, quite honestly. But literally, I have met 500-plus people at conferences. They're everywhere. And a lot of times, like we discussed before, when they go back to their cancer doc and say, hey, I'm here, and it's 10 years later, they say you're lucky. But it's not about luck. It's about rational reasons as to why they are here. And we need to make some of these therapies part of standard of care. 
Dr. Keith Block in Chicago, who wrote a chapter in the book, he said we need to make nutritional therapies part of standard of care, uh, and it's, it's criminal not to do that, and as well as the other therapies we discussed about in brief. One other thing that I know is very, very critical when it comes to uh, cancer treatment is early detection. How do you recommend people make their best effort for early detection of problems like that? Go get physicals. I mean, don't, don't, a lot of people, we, we think frequently that we're invincible. We're going to go on forever and you feel good, but, um, go get a physical. And especially when you hit the age of 50 plus, because cancer, we're not talking about, as I mentioned, 90 to 95% of cancers are related one way or another to our internal environment or external environment, lifestyle, and go see your doctor and go get blood work every year. So you can stay on top of things. And if you see some warning signs, if he or she sees some things that are a little bit amiss or out of the normal range, um, get it checked out. And regarding one more thing about blood work, when they say normal range, let's say for vitamin D is 30 to 100, if you're 31, you're in the normal range. But to me, from an academic metaphor, that's a D minus. That's not an A. You want to be in a certain optimal range when it comes to the blood work. So talk to experts about where you really want to be to mitigate the chances uh, of contracting cancer or other diseases. It's critical to do so. When somebody picks up your book, whether they've had a cancer scare or they're in the middle of fighting cancer or they have a loved one in the middle of one of those two things, what are the most important takeaways that you're hoping a reader will get from the book? Realize you're not a, you are not a statistic. These people are for real. Become an active self-advocate. You are the person, you are the CEO of your future. Listen to people's advice. Be careful about too much of the hysteria that might surround you from family and friends and peer pressure. Become a cancer scholar. There is a place for becoming the cancer warrior, but then you have to take a step back and become the cancer scholar and and assess things with a clear-headed, rational mind and create a really good team of people around you that can help you get through this and to march forward to improve your health. It doesn't happen overnight, but you want to strengthen your body to fight cancer, transform yourself, and don't quit because life is worth living. Do you anticipate sharing some more stories in a a follow-up book, maybe? Uh, You know, I've got a couple of ideas about some some, uh, other books. I certainly can do that. (laughs) There are so many people I could could write about, um, but that's something I'm I'm contemplating right now. So the book is called Hope Never Dies, and where can people get it? You can get it in several places. You can get it from Amazon. Uh, You can buy it through Amazon. You can go to your local bookstore, and if it's not in the bookstore, you can request it. Uh, or you can go to the, the website, hopeneverdies.com, and, and uh, order it there directly through Amazon or through a bookstore as well. Rick, thank you so much for sharing your time with us, these stories with us, and all of this hope with us. You're very welcome. Thank you. And it's, it's, it's actually a really, really inspiring book. It includes the 20 powerful inspirational interviews. We were talking about a couple of those with cancer survivors, plus five exclusive interviews with renowned cancer specialists and those 83 critical questions that if you get a diagnosis or someone you love does, that you need to ask your health, health care provider, your doctor. 
um, before you decide on a treatment option. So again, thanks to Rick, for, Rick, Rick Shapiro for joining us. And the website, of course, to get more information about this is hopeneverdies.com. Tomorrow night, we're going to be talking with a returning guest. In fact, I think he's been here a couple times. Bernie Taylor will be with us. He's a naturalist and an author. He'll be answering the question, are we alone in the cosmos? And he'll be doing that by examining examining nature's timekeeping system. So it'll be a very, very interesting conversation tomorrow night. Uh, what do we have coming up, uh, Ryan? We've got some good stuff. We've got um, um, Stefan Schwartz on Monday night. He's a futurist. I keep seeing this title of futurist popping mm, up. A lot yeah. more people are considering themselves to be futurists. Right. So he, he's been, um, for years now, uh, he, he works with remote viewers. I don't believe he is one himself. But he's been having them focus on the year 2050 for a long time now in an effort to kind of see what the future might be like. Okay, so, you know, my understanding of remote viewing, and this is a question for Stefan, obviously, is that, uh, you know, in in your existing time, you can look to another place. But he's talking about looking into the future right. using remote viewing techniques. Hmm, interesting. Not only another place, but another time. Yeah, all right. All right. That'll be interesting. That's Monday night's program. And then Tuesday night, Gerard Artson will be with us, educator, author, and student of the Ageless Wisdom. He asserts that the people behind the UFOs... And we've been getting a lot of UFO reports recently. They're actually on a spiritual mission to help our ailing world. Yeah, and he, he um, he's using the work of someone named George Adamski. Um, and uh, somehow he's he's used this work and piggybacked on it and, and uh, furthered it. Uh, and he, he says uh, he's he's got the, the scoop. He's got the message. He's got the message from the UFOs that are circling or landing or whatever they happen to be doing right whatever happened did, did that uh, storm area 51 thing happen i mean i never looked at it close enough I, to see when the date when i think the, the date, date came was. and went and i think that that they didn't actually storm they i think <laughs> did, it turned into more of a party yeah I which didn't. i would have gone to that had yeah, i known right. <laughs> that would have been a lot of fun probably all right that's going to do it for tonight thank you to everybody for joining us it's beyond reality radio and we will see you tomorrow night Beyond Reality Radio is hosted by Jason Hawes and J.V. Johnson and produced by Alexandria Johnson and Slick Eddie Edwards for Intercom Radio. Beyond Reality Radio is distributed by Westwood One Radio Networks. Stop by our Facebook page and say hello. Follow the hosts on Facebook as well. For Jason Hawes, follow at JasonHawes.taps. For J.V. Johnson, follow at JVJParanormal. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Radio or you have a suggestion for a guest, contact Slick Eddie Edwards at SlickEddieEdwards at gmail.com. Be sure to visit our chat room as well at beyondrealityradio.com. Thanks for listening.